Lord, your word says that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 19 says the fear of the Lord is clean. There is a purity that happens when we are in relationship with you. It doesn't come from us, it comes from you. And we understand, Lord, that the concept there of fear that is mentioned so many times in the Bible is not one of being terrified of you. Some of us had fathers that, not all guys in here, but some guys had some fathers that terrified them. Dads that, for whatever reason, alcohol or drugs or whatever, would get completely out of control. What, what a terrifying experience that is. But when the scripture talks about fearing you, it is speaking of a reverential awe. Absolute awe. And, and yes, you are to be feared because of your power, but you have never misused your power. You are the God who has power over your power. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we are not recipients of your wrath, which we justly deserve because of our sin. That, uh, that wrath was poured out on Christ when he went to the cross. He was the sin bearer. He died in our place. That's hard for us to get into our heads, even though the scripture teaches it over and over again. So often we think you're against us, but the psalmist said in 57.9, this I know that God is for me. You're not against us, you're our father. You, uh, you have the same intent as we would have with our sons. We want boys to grow into men. We don't want spoiled kids and we don't want immature kids. So as we walk with you and follow Christ, you enable us to encounter various things that challenge us and at times scare us and frighten us and we really wonder how in the world we'll get out of this. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that he is our shepherd. We thank you that he leads us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. We thank you that we are never by ourselves. Christ is in front leading us. He is on each flank and he is behind as Isaiah 33, uh, 30 says that he is whispering to us through his word, this is the way, walk you in it. Lord, we are pilgrims. This is not uh, our destination. The goal of our life is not Frisco. The goal of our life is not Highland Park. The goal of our life is not South Lake. The goal of our life is heaven. And because of what Christ has done, we're on our way. 
We're in process. We're growing. We are learning to walk by faith. And every guy in this room has an area in his life where you are forcing us to trust you. And we are walking by faith because if you don't come through for us, we're finished. Now tonight, as we're going to study the Bible, help us, Lord, as James says, help us. This is important and this is serious. Help us as we open your Bible, not just to be hearers. You're not just interested in, in the truth hitting our ears. You, you want it to hit our lives and our hearts, and then you want it to transfer into our behaviors and our attitudes. Um, would you help us with that? Would you help us with it? Give us teachable hearts. Uh, help us to be, each guy, man enough tonight, to be open to what you'd have to say to us. There may be an area you want to correct. It's foolish to fight you there. Give us the wisdom to submit. Help us. Help us, we pray. Encourage every man tonight by the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, week two, we are kicking into this study on Hebrews chapter 11, which we are calling From Shame to Fame. And you say, well, where does that come from? Well, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is God's Hall of Fame. It's got all kinds of Hall of Fames. Baseball Hall of, uh, Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown. Pro Football Hall of Fame is in Canton. I was there one time. I was doing a conference at a church about two miles from there, and I, there was a lunch break, and I went over to the Hall of Fame, and I had about, I don't know, I had less than a half hour. So I basically ran a real long wind sprint through the Hall of Fame, which I thought was appropriate, because that's a lot of football, it's just one runner, one sprint. I was gassed by the time I got done. And, uh, but I got through it. And I got a little key fob and, you know, life-changing experience. Anyway, um, Pro Football Hall of Fame, Canton. And then the Basketball Hall of Fame is in Springfield, Mass. God's Hall of Fame is Hebrews chapter 11. And you have some people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And the criteria uh, for being there is, in God's Hall of Fame, is not great hand-eye coordination, which you need for baseball uh, or for any sport. It's, it's not innate athletic ability that, if you have, God gave it to you. It's not hard work and discipline which gets you in. Uh, God's Hall of Fame, basically the ones who are in there, are those who walk by faith. The name of the game in the Christian life is walking by faith. Um, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll, we'll be returning to this, this theme over and over again, but in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a phrase, and it's pretty well known if you've known the Lord for a while. It says in verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to please Him, 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Um, the book of Hebrews is a book that is, a, in a sense, it's a book that transitions from the Old Testament and the covenants and the regulations. A lot of Jewish, but most of the early believers were Jewish. It wasn't until later that the non-Jews came in. Uh, so they grew up under an Old Testament sacrificial system and the law that was given to Moses by the Lord and handed down, and that's what they knew. But when Jesus came, he established a new, con a new covenant, a new contract, a new arrangement. He had said back in Jeremiah 31 that I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'll write my law in your heart. When Jesus went to the cross, that was accomplished. He, 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 he died. Uh, three days later, he rose again. You see in Acts 1, he ascends to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for us, and one day he's coming back. That's either true or it isn't. Christianity is based on facts. And when we say that we walk by faith, we walk by faith trusting in the God who cannot lie and trusting in the facts that he has given us. They're either true or they're not true. They're not ambivalent. God has made certain promises, and we stake our very lives on those promises, including our salvation. The focus, now here's a profound statement, okay? <laughs> That'll seem a little bit off when I make it. But the focus of Hebrews chapter 11, God's hall of faith, is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You say, well, why don't we just go there? Because Hebrews 11 is the setup. In volleyball, you've got the uh, spike, but you never have a spike without a good set. Um, Hebrews 11 is the set, and then Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is the spike. So Hebrews 11 is pointing us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now remember, he's you, you got all these Jews with this Old Testament sacrificial system. They'd known about it, you know, all their lives. But now Christ has come. Christ has gone to the cross. Note chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. A therefore is a summary statement, is it not? You're at a banquet and some guy's making a speech, and then at some point he says, therefore. And you go, good. <laughs> Unless he's a preacher of the Bible. Therefores mean nothing in regard to time. Or if you come here, if I say therefore, has no relevance. But normally, normal guys, when they say therefore, it means they're wrapping up. They're concluding what they just said. So Hebrews 12.1 says, therefore, therefore what? He's going to summarize what he just said in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, well, who's that? The people that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith, in the Hall of Fame, the individuals who in the Old Testament walked by faith, but now they have died and are with the Lord. But see, they have, they, they have finished the course. We're running the race. They're not. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us, watch this, run with endurance 
The race that is set before us, the reason it says endurance is that it's a long race. It's not a sprint. You don't Usain Bolt the Christian life. What do they call that? The 100 meters? They used to call it the 100-yard dash. Now it's the 100, 100, 100 meters. Yeah. And, which still doesn't seem right to me. It's too European. It's 100 yards. But now it's 100 meters. It's all the Euro thing. It's all the one world government. You know. You can tell. All this is in the Bible. <laughs> Including the 100 meters. Somewhere it's in there. It used to be the 100-yard dash, now it's the 100 meters. The Christian life is a race, but it's not a sprint. It's a long race. It's a hard race. You need endurance. Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, watch this. Here's the whole focus of the book of Hebrews. Let us, with endurance, let us run the race that is set before us. Watch this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It doesn't say fixing our eyes on a denomination. It doesn't say fixing our eyes on a tradition that I was raised in. It doesn't say fixing uh, my eyes on all the good works I've done in my life and all the Katrina victims I've helped and all the blood I've given to the Red Cross. It doesn't say any of that, does it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, watch this, who is the author and perfecter of faith. It just said in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible to please him. Well, where do you get faith in the first place? Faith is a gift of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christianity is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He's God. He's our substitute. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. He died in our place. He's our Savior. He's our Master. He's our Shepherd. He's our Lord. He's God. He's the one who gives us faith. And he's the one who wants to mature us. The Christian life is not an easy life. The Christian life is a hard life. It's a difficult life. We've already seen there we're running the race. Running what race? The, we're running this race with endurance. It's hard to run the Christian life. It, it's, 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 not, um, it's not easy. Uh, you have your ups and your downs. Look at Job, Job 1. A, a man who loved God, a man who feared God. The enemy says to the Lord, well, no wonder he fears you. You've given him everything. You've blessed him beyond comprehension. Allow me to test him. I'll show you what he's made of. And God put boundaries upon Satan and said, you can go this far, and that's as far as you can go. Because the devil is God's devil. He, he's, he's not equal with God. So the Lord allowed the enemy to afflict Satan, uh, to, to afflict Job, and all these things happened to him in about 45 minutes. One FedEx letter came, and before he could finish absorbing the terrible news, here comes another FedEx truck with another bad news, and it happened four times, and Job tears his clothes, including the loss of all of his kids and what we will call a natural disaster. And Job says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's not what he said. He said, the Lord gives and the, the Lord takes away. Interesting. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you go to Job chapter 2, and now he has boils from head to toe. It's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. 
And his wife comes in, and she said, why don't you just curse God and die? She was a real sweetheart. <clears throat> but you can't be too hard on her because she lost everything along with him. But Job said, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? All the American Christians said, yeah. Yeah, that's how I'd like it. But see, that's not how it works. By the way, all the people in Hebrews chapter 11 who are mentioned, they went through hard times. They went through adversity. They went through difficulty. They had broken hearts. They knew pain. It's the Christian life. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. That's the Christian life. Uh, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, we think we come to know Christ and there shouldn't be any tribulations. That's not what the Bible says. There is a place called heaven. This isn't it. But we're on our way. This is the proving ground. We're running the race. This is the gymnasium of the Christian life. And what God wants to do is take men. He gives us new hearts. He brings us to Christ. He takes strong men. He crushes them. God takes strong men and he beats them down so that we will cry out to him and say, not my will, but let him be done. We have our plans, we have our dreams, we have our hopes, we have our goals, we have our objectives. But the Bible says in Proverbs 16, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, any, any biography in the scripture where you've got enough information, you're going to see a process of God taking someone, changing their heart, putting a new heart within them. They trust in the Savior who was to come. Old Testament saints would look ahead. They looked ahead to the coming one who was promised. So they looked ahead to the coming of Christ, to the Lamb of God. They looked ahead to the cross. We, where we are in history, we look back to the cross. But no matter if you were Old Testament, New Testament, or post-New Testament, you look to the cross. Jesus Christ is Christianity. So the focus, the focus, and we can't ever forget this, of Hebrews is Christ. All the way through Hebrews, and we were studying the whole book, which we're not going to do because it takes us 14 years. But if you look at the whole book, it's about Christ being better. It's about Christ being greater. It's about Christ being superior to anything, to anyone, to the angels, to the old covenant. His sacrifice is greater. He is greater. Remember my friend Robert Lewis, when we were in seminary together, um, I was um, working at a downtown church in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we, we had some uh, girls in the college ministry who were going to the, what was that, Portland State, and it was downtown. Anyway, they were coming to the church, and they came and asked me to come over and meet with them because they, had, they were having some Mormon missionaries come by in the dorm, and they were, they were kind of shook them up. And so I said, okay, and that's fine. And I, Robert and I were eating dinner, and I told him about it. And he said, he said, hey, you mind if I tag along? So Robert and I went and met with these two Mormon missionaries in this dorm room with these two gals. And it was really interesting. 
And uh, I don't have anything significant. I just blanked out. Um, started thinking about something else, actually. <clears throat> no, it was really interesting because I was just, I was just working through that conversation because I can still remember it very clearly. Because at a certain point, you know, we're going back and forth. And I remember the guy said, we are not scripturians. That was his term. I'd never heard that term before. He said, we are not scripturians. We don't know the Bible. But we use this book. I said, where'd you get that book? Well, it was revealed to Joseph Smith. An angel appeared to him. The angel Moroni. Moroni is the angel. On, you see a Mormon temple. It's up on top. So I took him to Galatians chapter 1. That even though we or an angel from heaven should appear to you and give a different gospel, let him be accursed. I said, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not what's in the Bible. But it was an angel of light. Yeah, but even Satan can appear as an angel of light. That didn't go over well. And so, and, and one of the guys was um, kind of difficult. One of the other guys was more open. And we just had a discussion. And those girls were listening in for about an hour and a half. And at one point, one of the guys went into his clothes. And, his, and he said, he said, you know, I've heard different things and all of this. And I wasn't sure about this. And I prayed one night and I asked God if the Book of Mormon was true. And he told me that it was. That was his close. And I said, you know, that's really interesting. Because um, I asked him the same thing, and he told me it wasn't. <laughs> so somebody here is wrong. <laughs> and we kind of took it from there. And it was all works. And by the way, Christ is not an adequate sacrifice. Christ is not even God. Christ is an angel who was born in Jerusalem, according to their Book of Mormon. Christ wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is greater than the angels because he's God. Jesus is not a created being. Joseph Smith said that he was. And I remember at the end, we talked about who Jesus was. He had given his clothes. Robert and I gave ours, and we talked about who Jesus was. And the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, because he was God, he was the Lamb of God who died in our place and took our sins upon him. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Not as a result of a two-year mission. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, and any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We just went right through it. And then we said what Jesus did on the cross... When Jesus went to the cross, his last words were to die, which you translate as 
it is finished. It can also mean paid in full because he took my sin and he paid it in full with his blood. And he did that 2,000 years ago. So that means as I'm here today, what Jesus did on the cross, he paid for my past sin, he paid for my present sin, and as I'm here today, he's already paid for my future sin because he paid it all. I'll never forget the one guy looked at me. He just looked at me and he said, I, he said, that's astounding. He said, I wish I could believe that. And I said, it's the truth. It's the truth. Jesus is better. Jesus is the best of the best. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Now, well, here's what I'm going to do tonight, because we're going to be spending some time in Hebrews 11. And you have these different individuals. If you go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And let's just stop right there. So what about verse 1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I wanted to come up with a real short, pithy definition, and um, I, I came up with one, but it's not mine. It's the one that's in the margin of the ESV study notes, which is a great study Bible if you don't have one. Listen to what they say about 11.1 of Hebrews. It says, by defining faith as assurance and conviction, the author indicates that biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in imaginary wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God, will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. Thus, biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence, nor an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy, the God who has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises have proven true from generation to generation and who will never leave nor forsake his own, Hebrews 13, 5. Such faith in the unseen realities of God is emphasized throughout and provides confidence and assurance to those who trust in Christ. That's it. We take Christ at his word. We believe that God will perform his word. He is watching over his word to perform it. Does he do it on our time schedule? No. You say, I'm in this situation, I'm in this difficult spot, and I've been praying for God to deliver me, and he hasn't delivered me yet. Well, then what do you do? You keep walking by faith as they did. The Christian life is not a giant microwave. It would be nice if it were. We want, when, when we're in difficult straits, we want immediate relief. God is able to do it, uh, but oftentimes he doesn't do it when we want him to do it. Why? He wants us to learn lessons. He wants us to be stretched. He wants our faith to grow. He wants us to learn to trust. He wants us to mature. He, he wants us to become strong men. That's why we suffer. Hard lessons stay with you, 
easy lessons and easy deliverances tend not to. Um, so, so God is at work maturing us and conforming us into the image of His Son. Now, all these Old Testament saints in here walked by faith. And as we continue in Hebrews 11, it says, For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Well, that right there violates everything that's taught in our educational system. Does it not? Yes, it does. Um, Oh, and then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about, in verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. It speaks here of Abel. Well, who is Abel and who is Cain? They are the sons of Adam and Eve. Well, they didn't even exist. If you listen to modern scholarship. But see, the Bible says that they did exist. What, what you've got here, this is really kind of interesting. When you start walking by faith and you come to faith in Christ, you, you have to, um, here's what happens, is there is a transformation that takes place in your heart and in your mind. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The things that are being discussed here, a lot of people don't believe. A lot of us in here who would agree with this, we didn't used to agree with it. Why is that? Well, because something had to change in our hearts. Um, why is it that so many people in our culture, so many people in the world, do not believe what we just read in Hebrews 11 about how the worlds were created? They don't believe in Cain and Abel. That's just a myth. There are a lot of people in evangelical Christianity. I, I, I'm, I'm working through a book right now. Did Adam and Eve really exist? Written by an evangelical scholar to other evangelical scholars who are denying the historical existence of Adam and Eve. Amazing. But actually, it's not amazing. It's not amazing. Because this is what tends to happen in Christianity. Uh, it happens in Christian schools. It happens in Christian colleges. It happens in Christian seminaries. They usually last somewhere between 50 to 75 years before they go over the edge. And what happens is they deny faith. They deny truth. And you can pretty much look at any, you can look at a lot of Christian institutions, and this is what happens. 50 to 75 years. Sometimes it's less than that. Where trust in God, trust in His Word, begins to erode, and eventually it's, it's just not there. It's not there. Think of the great work that God is doing for His kingdom right now at Harvard and Yale <laughs> and Princeton. But you know those schools were set up for the propagation of the gospel and for the training of men of God to declare the Word of God that is without error. You know that, don't you? But it didn't take them long to nosedive. First Corinthians 2, verse 14, says this.
And the reason I'm hesitating, I'm just looking at how much of the rest of this I want to read to you. Um, go up to verse 6. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who mature, a wisdom, however, watch this, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, down to verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may, watch this, know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Watch verse 14. A natural man, it's going to give you two categories here, a natural man or a spiritual man. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So the fact that Adam and Eve existed, that's foolishness. You're a product of the American educational system. The fact that uh, evolution is not how things came about, but that God spoke the worlds into existence, that's foolishness. Is it not? Why? They're natural men. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. It's talking about the natural man is the man without Christ. But when Christ comes into our lives, he gives us a new heart, he gives us a new mind. We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. I think it's 2 Corinthians 5 that said, Satan has blinded the hearts of the, of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. So the things that we believe, and we, we believe about God and what the Bible says, we believe because God has changed our hearts and he has given us eyes to see the truth. Um, you notice how the Bible is under attack. And the most crazy things can be said and immediately hit the headlines. Did you know Jesus had a wife? <laughs> that just came out today. Dadgummit, I didn't know that. I didn't know it, but some woman at Harvard Divinity School. Well, there's a name for you, Harvard Divinity School. Somehow they didn't quite add up. But anyway, that's another issue. The chaplain there was a practicing homosexual until he recently died. Peter Gomes. So, and, and by the way, when you read this stuff, of course, you know, they're going to, the Jesus Project, they threw up all this stuff. Uh, if you want to find a quick rebuttal to this and the nonsense of it, go to um, uh, Tyndale House. Look up Tyndale House. Uh, it's the Evangelical uh, School of Study at Cambridge. And they've got a response to this in the document and the fragment. It's just, it's a crock. Okay. The man that's on the front page of everything. Jesus had a wife. The man, you can't say anything about Muhammad. <laughs> that just came to my mind for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I got, three, I got 
I, I got a couple questions. Because um, when we're in Hebrews 11, and let's go back to Hebrews 11, the, these, these men of old, according to Hebrews 11, chapter 2, these guys were in the Old Testament. These men and women that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. They were in the Old Testament. And my question is, um, my question is, can we trust the Old Testament? Because all these guys, are, their stories are in the Old Testament. Like, for instance, you come across, well, first of all, we understand in verse 3 that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what was seen was not made out of the things which are visible. So you've got creation by uh, divine fiat. He spoke the worlds into existence. Well, that's not what we're taught. My gosh, there are Christian schools that don't teach that. There are Christian schools that don't teach Genesis 1 anymore. And you'll pay some heavyweight money to send your kid to a Christian school. You better find out what they teach about Genesis 1. Because theistic evolution is rampant in evangelical Christianity. Wasn't it Baylor that was going to set up? They were. They had, a, they had a guy, William Dimsky. They brought in, and he was going to be the professor of intelligent design. Faculty booted him out real quick. You say, well, that's Baylor. Yeah, it is Baylor. So once again, you better do a little homework. You can't assume anything. You see? You can't assume. Maybe that's what they used to believe. Who would have a problem with intelligent design? in a Christian school. But you have professors that will sign doctrinal statements and they have no problem signing it to keep jobs even though they don't believe it. Can the Old Testament be trusted? Um, Darwin didn't think so. Uh, the first time Mary and I went to England... Um, I was there for a few days speaking, and then we stayed for a week, and there were some places we wanted to visit. One of the places we went to was um, I found out that you could go to Chartwell, Winston Churchill's estate, and it was part of the National Trust, and uh, man, we went there, and we spent a lot of time there. It was fascinating, because I'd read a lot of biographies about Churchill, and you can walk into a study, and there's the stand-up desk, and you know, there's the dining room where you entertain everybody at night, and it was a big brouhaha every night. And uh, when he had his 10 years of isolation, there were the brick walls that he, that he built. He wrote and he built. He became a certified mason because that's how he, he had nothing else to do. He was out of the political hemisphere. He was shunned. And uh, so he would dictate his books at night, and his motto was 2,000 words and 200 bricks. And those walls at Chartwell, he built those walls. Those ponds that were there, he brought in those big backhoes, and, and, and it's all there. And his art studio, and all, it's just, and so man, we're, we were going to be there a couple hours, we were there four, five, six hours. And we got out of there, and then there was another place I wanted to go, and it was like only 17.9 miles away and it was the home of Charles Darwin. And so we headed over there, but it was getting dark, and we pulled into the gravel parking lot, and it was dark, and it was closed. And we didn't have time to come back, so I told Mary, I said, you know what, I'm gonna jump that wall. <laughs> and she said, you're not doing that. And I said, watch me. 
And uh, so I took a bullet right here in the shoulder. <laughs> These guys are serious. No, there was nobody around. I, I didn't go over the wall, but it was only about six feet. So I got myself up, and there were the gardens. That's all I wanted to see were the gardens and the greenhouse, because that's where he formulated a lot of his ideas that basically dominate the whole world. That's where spiritual warfare was taking place, you see. Darwin's issue, his real, his real issue was bitterness towards God because his little girl had died of a disease. He never got over it. And he was very bitter and he was very angry towards God. And I just was up on that wall for about as long as I could hold myself up just looking at that. Because to me, that was historic. Spiritual warfare taking place in there as this man walked and thought and fought with God and basically rejected God. We all know about Darwin. And of course, you all know about uh, Robert Dick Wilson. Who? <laughs> Let me mention a guy who walked by faith that God greatly used uh, that probably none of us in this room are familiar with. His name was Robert Dick Wilson, a brilliant scholar who devoted his life. See, I asked the question. We're going into Hebrews 11. All these guys in the Old Testament, Cain and Abel. Come on, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, give me a break. Uh, Robert Dick Wilson devoted his life to proving that the Old Testament was true. He took on the higher critics out of Germany. The, the, all this criticism of the Bible, all of this, uh, th this new wave of thinking that uh, the, the, the Bible cannot be trusted, the Bible is not the Word of God, it all came out of Germany uh, in the 1800s. And you had the, uh, the Hodges from Princeton Seminary back when Princeton used to be conservative. You had A.A. A. Hodge, you had Charles Hodge. They went, Charles Hodge, when he first got married uh, and had a child, he went to Germany for two years because he wanted to interact with those guys head on. He wanted to know exactly what they were teaching so he could refute it in his systematic theology, and he did. And then Benjamin B. Warfield did the same thing. Most of us never heard of these guys. They were great men who walked by faith. Great men of God. You can still read their works today. One of them was Robert Dick Wilson. Uh, can I read a couple quotes? Robert Dick Wilson was truly a remarkable gentleman, Wayne Jackson says. Bible students are indebted to him for the masterful work he did in helping to confirm the credibility of the Old Testament. Wil Robert Wilson was born in 1856, graduated from Princeton at the age of 20, went on to earn both a master's and a Ph.D. He then did further postgraduate work in Germany for two years. Why? He wanted to go over there and talk with them face to face. He was a brilliant language student. While he was still in college, he could read his New Testament in nine languages. I hate guys like this. <laughs> now listen to this. Wilson was but 25 years old when he determined that he would invest years of careful study in the text of the Old Testament so that he could speak with authority as to whether or not it had been preserved in an accurate format. Because, see, they were attacking it and saying, oh, you can't trust that, that's a copy, and that's not legitimate, and this has been changed, and this fragment, you know. It's all about textual, the, the text. Is the text been preserved? You know, that's why this Jesus had a wife thing is, is a joke. It's a fract, not even sure it says it. Anyway, okay. 
Could we be sure that the writings at our disposal of the Old Testament have been faithfully preserved? After all, even if one is confident that the original scriptures were inspired of God, that would amount to little if they had been grossly corrupted across the centuries. This was the task, therefore, to which young Wilson dedicated himself at the age of 25, and he was a wonderfully disciplined person. Now get this, based upon the, longev the longevity of his immediate ancestors, Robert Wilson estimated that he might live to be about 70 years of age. Since he was 25 at the time, that would give him about 45 years remaining to accomplish his goal of verifying the Old Testament. Accordingly, he divided his projected remaining years into three periods of 15 years each. Here's how he would pursue his plan. For the first 15 years, he would study every language that had a bearing on the text of the Old Testament. He then set himself to the task. During that time, he mastered 45 languages. Mastered. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and in its kindred tongues, but he learned all the languages in which the scriptures have been translated down to the year AD 600. That's 25 to 40. I don't want to lose this because I had a quote from it. During the next 15 years, Wilson dedicated himself to studying the text of the Old Testament itself. He looked at every consonant in the Old Testament text. It didn't say every word, every consonant. You guys remember consonants and vowels? <laughs> this guy is what you call thorough. This guy is what you call precise. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It has consonants. It has little vowel points. So not only would he look at every word, he'd look at every consonant. That's what he did for 15 years. He looked at every consonant in the Old Testament text, about one and a quarter million of them for 15 years. He made a thorough scientific investigation of the Old Testament text as compared to other writers of antiquity, other writings of antiquity. He wanted to see if there were any errors. Here's just one example. He noted there are 29 ancient pagan kings of various nations which are mentioned in the Bible. Their names are also found in the writings of their own lands. The names of these kings consist in 195 consonants. He discovered in the Old Testament there are only two or three letters of the entire 195 that are in question as to spelling. By way of contrast, in the secular literature of the same period, the names of those rulers frequently are so garbled that one can scarcely identify the person. So my name's Farrar, F-A-R-R-A-R. -R -R. Every once in a while I'll get something in the mail, F-A-R-R-E-R. -R -E -R. That's what we're talking about. That's how thorough the Old Testament is, and it might have happened two or three times, period. It was it. Affected no teaching, no truth, no anything. Next 15 years, Wilson spent his remaining years writing down the results of his long research. He authored a marvelous book entitled The Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament in which he confidently affirmed, we are scientifically certain that we have, substanti that we have substantially the same Old Testament text that was in the possession of Christ and the apostles. And so far as anybody knows, the same as was written by the, the original composers of the Old Testament documents. So can the Old Testament be trusted? Well, here's a guy. Well, I don't think so. Well, what do you know? <laughs> well, I read something online the other night. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I read Jesus had a wife. Really? Jesus also loved fudge sickles. Did you know that? That's in there, too. The same fragment. That's absolute nonsense. Well, that's what I think. Who cares what you think? 
Who cares what I think? This guy spent 45 years of his life, of his life. Let's see if I can find this. Wilson said, Robert Dick Wilson said this, for 45 years continuously, I have devoted myself to the one great study of the Old Testament in all its languages, in all its archaeology, in all its translations. The result of these 45 years of study, which I have given to the text, has been this. I can affirm there is not one page of the Old Testament with which we need to have any doubt. Why? Because it's God's Word. And God cannot lie. That's why I went through all that. Because we read about these guys at Harvard, you know, the latest thing. Like, this sucker could do, I mean, hey, he could, he could tie those suckers in knots. He did the work, 45 years. So can the Old Testament be trusted? When it talks of Adam and Eve, Jesus spoke of Adam as, he, as a historical person. In Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, we, we have this stuff now in evangelical Christianity. Well, did, was Jonah, did Jonah really exist? The Bible says he existed. But, but see, what, what's happening? See, what's happening is, what, what's happening, we've lost the authority of God. We've lost the authority of Scripture. We, we think this thing is Microsoft Word. It's not Microsoft Word. It's the Word of God. Microsoft Word, you can highlight, you can cut, you can paste, you can delete, you can change it up. This is the Word of God. So when it talks about Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel existed. These genealogies that you have in Scripture, this, this stuff isn't just put out here for fun. This isn't, myth, this isn't mythological stuff. These are historical individuals, and it's all come under attack. C.S. Lewis, for the longest time, was not a Christian. But then he became a Christian. He was a brilliant scholar at Oxford and then later at Cambridge, uh, after he came to know the Lord, one of the books that C.S. Lewis wrote, are you guys still with me? See, the reason I'm telling you this is that most of us don't have 45 years to go master 45 languages and to check all this stuff out. But I want you to know there's some guys that God has gifted to do this. That's their calling. Okay? These guys aren't fly-by-nights. These guys have devoted their lives, and they have been given to the church. And when I read about these guys, I'm encouraged because you hear so much nonsense going on. C.S. Lewis, one of the books he wrote was called Miracles. <clears throat> Let me quote this from Terry Glaspie's little biography on Lewis. Um, many theologians in C.S. Lewis's time were committed to the ethical system which Jesus taught and the example of his life. This all comes out of the German higher criticism. Oh, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he wasn't God. Well, hold on there, buddy. He said he was God. One of the greatest things Lewis ever said is, Jesus was either the son of God or Jesus was a raving mad lunatic. But you, he didn't leave you any room to say that he was a good man. Because, because he said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, 
no man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then Lewis basically said this. He didn't leave you any room to say he was just a good moral man. Because good moral men don't lie. So either he was delusionary and believed it to be true, therefore was a lunatic, or he knew he wasn't true because he wasn't God, but don't say that he was a good moral man. Good moral men don't say such things unless it's true. That was the subject of my senior persuasive speech in 1971, and it just kind of flew out. (laughs) And none of it was original with me. I just, I just read the smart guys. Many theologians in Lewis's time were committed to the ethical system which Jesus taught in the example of his life, but they drew the line at the belief that there was a realm beyond what could be experienced with the senses. They rejected the idea of a supernatural reality that could impinge upon or affect our world. See, this is what happened with Darwin and with the higher critics and the meeting that took place in 1905 in New York with Upton Sinclair and with, uh, 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 who was the guy that, uh, Jack London, uh, uh, John Dewey, who became, you know, who influences the National Education Association. All this stuff that there is no supernatural. You read the Humanist Manifesto? There is no supernatural. There is no God. Everything is the material world. Everything is the natural world. See, this runs counter to Christianity. It runs counter to the life of faith. The natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Okay? Am I making any sense? It's two worldviews. Okay? They rejected the idea of a supernatural reality that could impinge upon or affect our world. For these thinkers, Jesus was a good teacher, but he could not have been born of a virgin or resurrected from the dead. They deny all the miracles. Why? Well, those are supernatural, and that can't happen. That can't exist. That's not possible, really. If you saw the Ben Stein movie, can't remember the title, where he took on the atheist, of whom the most famous is Richard Dawkins, you know, the giant brain guy out of Oxford or wherever the heck he's from. At the end of the movie, it was sad. It was tragic. He's talking to Dawkins, and Dawkins kind of lets his guard down, and Dawkins basically says that he sees some intelligent design in the world. And Stein looks at him and goes, what? Where's his effect? He goes, oh, well, well, there's obviously some design. Well, where do you think it came from? Well, not from, well, well, not that there's a God. Of course there's not a God. Well, where do you think it came from? He said, I believe it came from aliens from another planet who came to this earth. That's what the guy said. If you saw it, that's what he said. It was, it was sad. It was tragic. The fool, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Even though they knew God, they did not give him glory as God. Romans 1, 18. But worship the creation instead of the creator and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, The reason that some accept the supernatural while others reject it is that people differ in their fundamental ideas about the universe. Lewis pointed out two basic views of reality. And this all has to do, let me tell you something. 
This all has to do in regard to Hebrews 11 and walking by faith, because God's called us to walk by faith. And listen, if there's no supernatural, if there's no God, if he hasn't made promises, and if he doesn't come through, we're finished. And you read the Humanist Manifesto, and they said, you get to the end of your life, and that's it. That's why we want to do as much good for people on the earth as we can, because that's all there is. But Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, and my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And you're going to die. Oh, yeah. And just looking at you, it's going to be soon. <laughs> I got about three weeks left, I think. Yeah, I'm not doing all that well. No, it's appointed for a man to die, then comes judgment. Well, don't judge me. Okay. I don't want to be judged. Well, you're out of luck. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat. The reason some accept the supernatural while others reject is that people differ in their fundamental ideas about the universe. Lewis pointed two basic views of reality. The first is that of materialism, the belief that nature is all that there is. Nature is the whole show. There is nothing beyond what can be perceived by the five senses. If we cannot touch, taste, feel, smell, or hear it, it cannot be a reality and only exists in our heads. Thus, God, angels, the soul in heaven are merely psychological wishes, not concrete realities. By the way, you send your kid off to college, you've raised him in a Christian home to know the word, you send him off to a secular university and pay 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 grand a year, this is what he's going to get. Just, I mean, just know it. Don't be surprised. Just know it. Just want to encourage you. <laughs> the other major view of reality is that of supernaturalism, the belief that the universe is a dependent creation of an almighty God who made it out of nothing and can invade the material realm which he stands above at will. Um... Lewis suggests that we reject naturalism for two reasons. First, because it undermines the validity of thought itself. And second, because it provides no basis for the moral sentiments that we universally hold. Naturalism undermines the validity of thought itself because if naturalism is true, follow this now. If naturalism is true, then all thinking is just the result of chemical reactions occurring in the brain. That's all it is. If thinking is not a participation in the reason of God, it has no objective basis on which to test its truthfulness. How do we know that those chemical reactions are producing anything more than illusions? Is it valid to use our thought processes to reject any real objective basis for thinking? As Lewis wrote, when you are arguing against God, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. <laughs> Notice that it says in Hebrews 11, okay? And we get, we're surrounded by this stuff, right? Notice this. Without faith, it's impossible. This is for us in this room, okay? Every, every guy in this room has got something heavy, you got something big, you got something major. You don't know how it's going to sort out. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Watch this, watch this. For those who come to him must believe that he is. 
Our world says he isn't. He says he is. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The Old Testament saints walk by faith. We walk by faith. I just became familiar um, this last week with Reverend Kenny MacDonald. Never heard of the gentleman. He's a pastor in Scotland. And I got four zeros staring me in the face, so I'm about done in about 45 minutes. <laughs> Won't take long. I'd never heard of Pastor McDonald, but he pastors in Scotland, in a remote little village. In 1981, his daughter Allison went with a friend to India, to Kashmir, and they were there for a couple of weeks traveling. Uh, she became separated from her friend, and when her friend got back to the village, Allison was gone. Allison disappeared in 1981 at the age of 19 and her family has never seen her since. Her father got a call in Scotland that she was missing, immediately made his way, prepared for a funeral service. I watched his testimony on YouTube, it's fascinating. Um, he went fully prepared to attend the funeral service of his 19-year-old daughter with a broken heart. You can imagine flying, what, 24 hours to India from Scotland. When he got there, certain things did not quite add up. While he was there, he became convinced that she was not dead, but that she was alive and that she had been kidnapped. In the ensuing years since 1981, he has made 17 trips to India because the evidence continues to show that she is alive, that she was taken probably across the border into Pakistan, living perhaps in some tribal chieftain's harem. But every time they're about to put it to a close, there's indications, and this has been going on since 1981. How would you do with that? I don't think I'd do very well. The lady that was interviewing him on YouTube, said, do you have trouble keeping hope? He said, oh no, oh no. He said it was very difficult at first, but God gave us glimpses that she was alive. The most recent one is that he heard a young Pakistani tribesman speaking with a Scottish brogue. <laughs> now, where'd that come from? See, God continues to give him things. And, and the interviewer said, are you without hope? He says, I'm not without hope. My prayer is that I will see her again. And he's now in his late 70s. He has multiple sclerosis, and he's losing his vision. But he's praying that God will allow her somehow to be reunited, and he will see her before he dies. And, and the young lady said, does it ever cross your mind that you won't see her again? He said, no. Because if I don't see her in this life, I will see her in the next. That's faith. That's the assurance of things hoped for. Why? <laughs> he said she knew the Lord. 
And he said, and God had a purpose even in this in her life, just as he had a purpose in Joseph's life. It was not what we planned. It was not what we wanted, but God still has a purpose. I am praying I'll see her on this earth, but if I don't, oh, I'll see her, and I'll see her forever. <laughs> That's walking by faith. He's got every guy in this room that names the name of Christ. In some area, you're trusting God to fulfill his word for you at the right time. It might be to pay your mortgage this month. That's what it might be. It's not a daughter that you haven't seen in 30 years. It might be just to meet your bill or to get the electric bill. Everybody looks cool, but there are guys in here that are right up against it, and you're trusting him for daily bread. Well, he's the God who has said, Paul said, my God shall supply most of your needs. My God shall supply what? Because he's the God who cannot lie. We're walking by faith, guys. And he sees it. And can I tell you this? When you put it all out before him and you say, Lord, I trust you with everything I have. You know what it does? It pleases him. He doesn't ask you to be without sin. He asks you to trust in the Savior and to trust in his word. And I'm going to tell you something. He's got your back. He's got your back. Let's pray. We're trusting you, our Father. There are guys in this room, I've talked to a few already this week, that are in places today they never thought they'd be 10 days ago. Uh, things have dramatically changed for them, and they're facing stuff that never even entered their mind 10 days ago. And now they're trying to figure out, well, this is not what I saw coming. This is not what I expected, but here I am. So what are they doing? They're walking by faith. They're trusting you for today, and then they'll go to sleep. You give to your beloved even in their sleep, and then they'll get up in the morning, and they need new mercy tomorrow, but that's okay because your mercies are new every morning. So we walk by faith today, and in the morning we do it all over again, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is the Christian life. <laughs> Thank you that you have opened our eyes. Thank you that you drew us to yourself. Our blind eyes were opened by the work of the Spirit of God. You gave us faith, and we called in the name of Christ, and we're saved from our sin. Encourage every guy, I pray. We're going to make it. We're going to make it because you are faithful and you are true. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that you may strongly support them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.